the entirety of human history can be summed up as the tale of two Adams. At least that was the way the Apostle Paul understood the overarching framework of human history. In Romans chapter 5, he wrote this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. God's dealings with humanity, in other words, can be organized under the heading of two covenants forged between God and two men who act as covenant representatives for two humanities. The first covenant was enacted at creation when God created man in his own image and entered into covenant relationship with him. In this first covenant, God promised eternal life and eternal blessing and eternal fellowship as a reward for the obedience of faith. Yet he threatened eternal death and cursing and separation as the penalty for sin and for unbelief. This first covenant, known as the covenant of creation or the covenant of works, was established between God and Adam in the Garden of Eden. And in this covenant of creation, in this covenant of works, Adam represented not just himself, but all humanity who would descend from him by ordinary generation, including you and me. The supreme test of this first covenant took place in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And it was represented by two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The terms of this covenant were established as follows. If Adam would trust God and obey God in not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would gain access for himself and all of his descendants to the tree of life which represented life and blessing and fellowship with God. However, if Adam disbelieved and disobeyed God by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, both he and his descendants, whom he represented, would suffer eternal death, would come under the curse of God's wrath, and would be separated from God forever, excluded from the tree of life. Now, you know how the story ends. You've read Genesis chapter 3. When tempted by Satan, Adam took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in so doing, he grasped for independence from God. He grasped for the right to decide for himself what was good and evil, what was true and false, what was right and wrong, thus exerting his own will above the will of God. As a result, Adam fell into condemnation and his entire nature became corrupted by sin. And according to Paul in Romans 5, 
all of humanity, in all ages, in all places, in all times, including every one of us, shares in Adam's condemnation and corruption by nature, as well as Adam's fate. All mankind is born in Adam, born under this broken covenant, born under condemnation, born in sin and enmity with our Creator, destined for eternal death and misery and exclusion from the blessing of God's presence forever. That's the story of the first covenant, the story of the first Adam. But in God's mercy, there is a second covenant and there is a second Adam. This second covenant, known as the covenant of grace, has its foundations in the eternal will of God to redeem a people for himself from sin and death and misery. And in his fathomless wisdom, God willed to send a second Adam to become the head of a new humanity which would be redeemed out of the first fallen humanity. This second Adam would be born of the first Adam's line. That is, he would be born of woman, but not by ordinary generation. That is, not in the ordinary way of men, but rather by supernatural generation. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. In this way, this second Adam would be born under the first covenant, born under law, as Paul says in Galatians 4.4, just like us. But he would not be subject to the corruption and condemnation inherited by the rest of the human race. And this second Adam would triumph where the first Adam had failed, in a garden, in a test of his faithfulness and obedience. And according to Paul, this second Adam's triumph over temptation and sin leads to justification and life for all those who are united to him by faith. This one act of righteousness, this one act of saying, not my will, but thy will be done, secures the blessing of the covenant for all those who will trust in him. By this one act of righteousness, the curse of our covenant disobedience was taken away. The penalty for our sin paid in full. And the blessings of the covenant won for all whom he represents as our covenant head. And as we read in Revelation chapters 2 and 22, in the days to come, the second Adam will lead his people back into the presence of God, back to the tree of life where we will eat and live forever. This morning, we come to that moment of testing of the second Adam in the second garden. The second Adam is the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the first Adam was tested in the Garden of Eden and failed, as we will see this morning, the second Adam will be tested in the Garden of Gethsemane and will prevail. The first Adam said, not 
thy will, but my will be done. And all of humanity was plunged into a state of ruin and destruction. The second Adam said, not my will, but thy will be done. And a new humanity was redeemed and gathered into the blessing of eternal fellowship with God. You see, before the cross of Calvary, before the scourging, before the crown of thorns, before the beating, before the trials, before the betrayal, before the arrest, there was the garden and the supreme test of Jesus' life. And praise God, he triumphed where the first Adam failed. Now the last time we gathered... Mike walked you through the Passover meal, which Jesus ate with his disciples on the last night of his earthly ministry, in which Jesus took the memorial meal of the Old Covenant, which commemorated and celebrated that great Old Covenant act of redemption in the Exodus, and he transformed it into the memorial meal of the New Covenant, which celebrates the great New Covenant act of redemption in the death of and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For 1,500 years, the old covenant people of God had been celebrating the Passover. And every year as they partook of the Passover, they looked back on a great act of redemption when God rescued them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And they looked forward to the time when the Messiah would come and would bring them the ultimate redemption from sin. Even so, for 2,000 years now and counting, the new covenant people of God, the church, every time that we gather, in our case once a month, and we partake of the Lord's Supper, we look back upon the great act of redemption accomplished in the cross of Jesus Christ, and we look forward to the consummation of our redemption when Jesus will return and we will eat and drink with him in the new heaven and in the new earth. The last verse we read, verse 26, stated that Jesus and his disciples sung a hymn, probably Psalms 115 to 118, and then they left Jerusalem and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, that brings us this morning to verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. One point that Mark seems intent on emphasizing over and over and over again in this morning's text is that the second Adam faced his greatest test utterly alone. Not only was he betrayed by one of his closest followers, he was abandoned by his closest friends. This was a lonely night for the Son of Man. Before all is said and done, even his father will forsake him. As we think about Jesus' prediction of his disciples' abandonment, I want to make some observations about the scattering of the sheep. I have five observations that I want to point out from this paragraph, from verses 27 down to verse 31. Observation number one, I want you to note 
that failure is ordained by God for our good. Failure is ordained by God for our good. I want you to note that Jesus' prediction of the disciples falling away is grounded in a text of Scripture. It comes from Zechariah 13.7, which was a text written more than 500 years earlier. Zechariah 13.7 says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. You know what Jesus is saying? By quoting from Zechariah 13.7, he's saying, this doesn't happen by accident. Your failure is predestined. The disciples' cowardice, their fear, their shame, their falling away, that happens because God calls forth to his sword to awake and to strike down the shepherd who stands at his right hand so that the sheep may be scattered. And all of it is for a good and glorious purpose because God does nothing by accident. He does nothing coincidentally. And he does all things well, including ordaining the failures of his sheep. The disciples were being sifted, broken, humbled, in order that they might be renewed and restored stronger than they were before. We're going to see that in the lives of the disciples, but I want you to know this morning that the same is true in the lives of every one of his sheep. This is the purpose of failure. You see, little is learned through success, because success can breed pride and self-reliance, and it provides little motivation for self-reflection and repentance. But failure is a master teacher, and it clearly had its intended effect in the lives of the disciples, all of whom once they were restored, would go on to lead lives of perseverance in which they would endure great sufferings and persecutions for the sake of Christ, would persevere through those sufferings and would remain faithful unto death. That wouldn't have happened. Their decades of faithfulness culminating in their martyrdom wouldn't have happened apart from the lessons that they learned in this failure. The picture that emerges in this passage of Peter and the rest of the disciples is of a group of men who trust entirely in their own strength and in the determination of their own will. And that is why they failed. In fact, that is why they had to fail. Failure is the instrument that God used to break them of their self-reliance, of that false hope Failure knocked them off of that futile foundation and left them with no other hope and no other foundation but Christ and Christ alone. So look at the example of how God dealt with the disciples in ordaining their failure in order that he might strengthen them and restore them and lead them to greater faithfulness. And don't despise your failures. Don't dwell upon your failures. Don't allow your past failures to define your future. Don't glory in your failures as if failure were somehow a virtue, but learn from them. 
reflect upon them. Let them humble you. Let them break you of your self-reliance. Let them teach you that you are not strong in yourself. You are not strong in yourself to resist the temptation of greed. You are not strong in yourself to resist the temptation of lust. You are not strong in yourself to resist the temptation of cowardice. You have no strength to persevere in you. Therefore, you must trust in Jesus who is strong. Failure teaches you that lesson. Therefore, no failure in the Christian life is futile and no failure is coincidental. Rather, our failures are God's ordained means of training us for future faithfulness. That's the way I want you to think of your past failures. God ordained that that should happen. With all of the shame, all of the regret, all of the consequences that came out of it, God ordained that that would happen so that he might train me for future faithfulness. It's exactly what he's doing in the lives of Peter and the rest of the disciples, and that's exactly the way that he handles every one of his children, disciplining us that we might share in his holiness. Second observation from this passage I want you to note that the stumbling of sheep is different than the betrayal of goats. And I think this is an important distinction for us to make, and it's, it's definitely here in the text. Look very closely where Jesus tells the disciples, you will all fall away. Fall away translates a Greek verb Scandalistasis they, for you Greek scholars or, I don't know, people who want to impress others at parties maybe. It's in the passive voice, which means that the action of the verb is not something which the subject does, but something which is done upon the subject. So a better translation, a more faithful translation to this Greek verb would be something like this. You will all be caused to stumble. In other words, the disciples will not willfully defect from Jesus, like Judas, for instance. Rather, they're going to be knocked off balance by some external force that they were not expecting, such that they lose their footing and they stumble, they fall away. James Edwards writes, it is in other words a lapse rather than an egregious rebellion. It is the failure to do what Jesus commanded the disciples in chapter 13 to do, namely to be watchful and stalwart. So when I speak of failures in the Christian life, I'm not speaking of willful, continuous, unrepentant sin. Listen to me very closely. Sheep do not engage in willful, continuous, unrepentant sin. Goats do that. When I speak of failures, rather, I'm talking of sins that arise from a lack of watchfulness, a lack of vigilance, a lack of prayer. 
Sheep are caused to stumble such that they fall away. Goats betray Jesus and they never come back. It's the fundamental difference between the two. So I want you to think back on your past failures. Is there not a very real sense in which that sin snuck up on you? Is there not a very real sense in which it caught you by surprise? It caught you off guard? It it came up from behind, attacked you, and dragged you down? I'm not saying that in the moment you weren't a willing partner in it. I'm saying you didn't see the temptation coming. That's the kind of failures that happen to sheep. And on the other end of that failure, sheep repent. It's fundamentally different than betraying Jesus by living in open, willful, continuous, unrepentant sin. That's the mark of goats. And they are not saved. Third, God struck down the shepherd for the salvation of the sheep. Notice what Jesus says. Who struck down the shepherd? God's speaking. And he says, I will strike the shepherd. The reason the sheep will be scattered is because God will strike down the shepherd. And why will God strike down the shepherd? Now again, Zechariah 13, knowing where this quotation comes from, helps us understand. Zechariah 13 gives two answers. Number one, when God strikes the shepherd and the sheep are scattered, this is a part of God's refining process for his people, which will turn the scattered sheep into a holy people belonging to the Lord their God. Look at verses 8 and 9 of Zechariah 13 this afternoon, and you'll see that's exactly the point of the scattering. God's refining his people. He's purifying his people. He's turning the scattered sheep into holy saints. Secondly, God's striking down of the shepherd is connected to the earlier promise in Zechariah 13.1 that God was going to open up a fountain for sin and uncleanness for his people. So in striking down the shepherd, God opened up that fountain in which sinners like us may be cleansed. If God hadn't struck the shepherd, there would be no cleansing fountain. So God will strike down the shepherd in order to cleanse the sheep And he will scatter them in order to sanctify the sheep. Observation number four. Just as the shepherd will not stay dead, neither will the sheep stay scattered. See, after predicting that all of his disciples would fall away, then Jesus says in verse 28, But after I am raised, I will go before you, literally, I will lead you before me to Galilee. Now, this marks the fourth time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has explicitly predicted his resurrection. So the shepherd will not stay struck down. He will rise again. And when he rises, he will go seek, find, rescue, and restore his scattered sheep. Failure will not have the last word in the life of the sheep because the shepherd will lose none of them which the Father has given him. So I want you to remember that if you're fresh off one of those failures, or maybe if you're in the middle of one of those failures. If you are a sheep, your risen shepherd will come for you. 
He will come for you, he will rescue you, he will restore you, and he will lead you into the eternal pastures. Failure will not have the last word in your life. Jesus died and rose again so that glory would have the last word. Finally, the fifth observation from this first passage. Pride goes before the fall. Mark does not leave us to wonder why Peter and the rest of the disciples fell away. Everything that Peter says in verses 29 and 31 just drips with pride and self-assurance. Even though they all fall away, I will never fall away. And then, after Jesus emphatically assures Peter that yes, he too will fall away. Literally, in the Greek, Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you that you, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Even after that prophetic, emphatic assurance, Peter continues to affirm the strength of his own resolve. No, Jesus, you're wrong. I will not fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. The sense of the Greek is that Peter declared this repeatedly and emphatically. And he was not alone either, for all of the disciples said the same. And that was the problem. Rather than watching and praying, as Jesus instructed and warned them to do throughout chapter 13, and again in chapter 14, verses 34 and 38, the disciples continued to trust in their own strength, in the determination of their own will, and in their own dedication, and they fell like dominoes. This is precisely why God ordained their failure, that they might learn that perseverance depends not on the strength of their own resolve, but in their reliance upon the Spirit's preserving power. That was the point of their failure, and that is why it is recorded in Mark's gospel that we might learn that lesson as well. Perseverance in the faith does not depend on the strength of our own resolve, but rather on reliance upon the Spirit's preserving power. You are only as strong as you are prayerful. You hear me? You are only as strong as you are prayerful. Your purity is only as strong as you are prayerful. Your marriage is only as strong as you are prayerful. Your integrity is only as strong as you are prayerful. Your faithfulness, your perseverance, your ministry is only as strong as you are prayerful. So would you persevere in faith through trials and temptations? then you must watch and pray. As Jesus will tell Peter, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Beloved, your spirit is willing. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
That's what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us, our will is changed and it becomes willing to obey Christ, willing to follow Christ, willing to die for Christ rather than to fall away. The Spirit is willing in the hearts of every born-again believer, but the flesh, hear me, the flesh is still weak. The problem is not the willingness of our spirit, it's the weakness of our flesh. Therefore, Jesus says to his disciples, he says to Peter, and he says to us this morning, watch and pray. That's precisely what Jesus did, and he was faithful to the end. The disciples would fail in their hour of trial just as the first Adam failed in his because of a failure to watch and pray. But thank God the second Adam did not make the same mistake. Verse 32, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. He went to Gethsemane, which is a Hebrew word which means olive press. The garden of Gethsemane was in actuality an olive grove enclosed by a stone wall which likely, at least at one time, contained an olive press from whence it derived its name. The garden of Gethsemane was located at the foot of the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley to the east of Jerusalem. And it evidently was a familiar place for Jesus and his disciples for John tells us that Jesus often met there with his disciples. And at any rate, Judas knew exactly where Jesus would be found that night. When they arrived, Jesus left the other eight disciples at the entrance and took with him Peter and James and John into the inner sanctum of the garden. Why? Well, these three had already been selected as an inner circle of sorts, the leaders of the disciples. But it's probably no coincidence 
that all three, Peter and James and John, had also, not long before, boasted of their ability to follow Jesus through suffering. You'll remember that James and John assured Jesus in Mark chapter 10 that they, they were able to drink the cup which he would drink and to be baptized with the baptism with which he was baptized. Yes, Lord, we're able to suffer as you will suffer. And Peter, earlier that night, had boasted of his own strength, which was, in his own estimation, greater than all the rest. In other words, these three disciples, in particular, needed to learn what it actually takes to persevere. Again, it's not the strength of their own resolve. It's not how strong and faithful they imagine that they can be. Rather, perseverance depends solely upon our reliance upon the Spirit's preserving power. Therefore, if we would persevere, we must watch and pray. And that's the lesson that Jesus is going to teach these three disciples in particular. And so he takes them aside from the rest. He leads them into the inner sanctum where he himself will watch and pray so that he may persevere. Now this portion of scripture represents holy ground for me. It's a deeply emotional passage. In a very real sense, as I will explain momentarily, this is where our salvation was won. It is a holy scene, a deeply moving scene. And as I studied and wrote this sermon, I I just had to stop and tremble a number of times at what is being described here. And I pray... I prayed this morning, and I prayed at the beginning of this message, that God would grant us to feel something of the weight of what transpired in Gethsemane. Two questions, I believe, need to be answered if we are to understand the supreme import of this hallowed scene. Question number one, why was Jesus so afraid in Gethsemane? What was it that had Jesus staggering in anguish and fear? And question number two, what was the result of Jesus' travail and triumph over the temptation of that hour? Well, Mark's description of Jesus' emotional state could not be more intense. Throughout this scene, he utilizes rare adjectives and powerful verbs to describe what Jesus was feeling. He writes, in other words, in very strong, intense language. For instance, in verse 33, he says that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So my ESV renders it. Greatly distressed, however, is a rather weak translation of the Greek verb ekthombasthai. A better translation would be that Jesus was terror-stricken. That Jesus was in the grip of a shuddering horror, as one translator rendered it. Then in verse 34, Jesus tells the three, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Again, it's a weak translation. Very sorrowful. Perilupos is the translation of another rare Greek word. 
the preposition on the front of that word, peri, means surrounding, as in the word perimeter. And the rest of the word, the root, lupos, means sorrowful. And so together, peri-lupos gives the sense of one who is surrounded by sorrow, overcome, overmatched, conquered by sorrow, overwhelmed with grief. This is not the time for hyperbole. Jesus is not exaggerating when he says, my soul is overwhelmed by sorrow, even to the point of death. Jesus is not exaggerating. He really feels as if the grief and the terror and the anguish that he is experiencing will kill him. So withdrawing from his disciples, he goes a little way off and he repeatedly collapses over and over. It's an imperfect verb, meaning it's a repetitive action. He's falling to the ground and he's staggering to his feet and he's falling to the ground again under the weight of the ordeal. Luke adds the detail that being in agony, he prayed all the more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground, Luke twenty-two forty-four. Jesus, just, to, just picture this, Jesus is under such mental and emotional duress that his subcutaneous capillaries, the capillaries beneath his skin, begin to dilate and burst, causing the blood to escape through the pores of his skin, and mingling with his sweat, they fall to the ground. This is suffering of an indescribable degree. Words fail to describe what Jesus is enduring. And on top of it all, remember, he is facing all of this agony utterly alone. Not only do his disciples, even his closest friends, fail to watch and pray for him, repeatedly falling asleep under the influence of the feast and the wine and the lateness of the hour, but even heaven is utterly silent before his pleas. William Lane, the great commentator on the Gospel of Mark, wrote, Quote, Jesus came to be with his father for an interlude before his betrayal, but he found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. So what was it that caused Jesus such intense emotional anguish? The answer, I believe, is found in verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Jesus feared the cup. The cup of what? Well, some would say the cup of death. But this cannot be true, that Jesus feared death. Why? Throughout human history, men have stared down death with courage and resignation and have not flinched. So are we to think that the author of life, who four times now has predicted his own resurrection, fears death? No, Jesus does not fear death. Others have suggested that Jesus feared the cup of suffering. 
He knows he will be beaten. He knows he will be scourged. He knows he will be crucified. So maybe he is staggering at the thought of all of the pain that awaits him in the next 12 hours. A few years back, I was listening to a sermon preached by Paul Washer in which he addressed this very question of what was it that Jesus feared? What was in the cup? And Washer was saying that he had heard a number of pastors and preachers over the years explain that it was the impending suffering that caused Jesus to be stricken with terror. In other words, Jesus was terrified at the thought of the scourge, the thorns, the nails, the cross. But, Washer said, this is tantamount to blasphemy. See, the pages of church history are overflowing with accounts of believers who joyfully accepted suffering and death for the sake of Christ. For example, during the Neronian persecution of the mid-60s, the saints, including, by the way, those of Mark's own congregation to whom he writes, they were crucified upside down, they were covered in tar, they were lit on fire to light up Nero's gardens. So are we to believe, asks Washer, that according to the testimony of many, these martyrs went to unspeakable horrors while singing hymns of joy, while the captain of their salvation cowered in a garden afraid of the very same thing. Are we to believe that the Son of God feared a whip, or a cross, or thorns, or nails? No! It was not the physical suffering that caused Jesus to tremble that night. It was not the prospect of an agonizing death that caused his capillaries to burst as he pleaded with his father for rescue. No, there was something else in that cup besides pain. So what was it? What was in the cup that Jesus feared to drink? What was in the cup that the very thought of it crushed him beneath its weight. It was the cup of God's wrath against human sin. This imagery of a cup of wrath is a familiar one in Scripture. From the Psalms to the prophets to the revelation of John, it appears over and over again. For instance, in Psalm 75.8, it is written, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. In Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16, we read, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Take this cup of the wine of the wrath from my hand. And cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and they will stagger and they will go mad because of the sword that I will send upon them. And in Revelation 16.9, John writes that the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And when Christ returns in judgment upon the earth, it is said in Revelation 19.15, 
that from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So the cup that Jesus fears to drink is filled with the wrath of God against sin. And to drink that cup of wrath is to be exposed to the full fury of the ferocious judgment of a holy God. All the wicked of the earth will drink it down to the dregs, then stagger off like drunken men to their destruction. That is what Christ feared most. Not the cross, not the nails, not the thorns, not the whip, He trembled before the cup of God's wrath that he was destined to drink on behalf of sinners. To drink the cup of God's wrath is to endure hell itself. And that is what Jesus feared. And if the Son of Man feared the experience of hell upon the cross... How ought sinners to tremble before the prospect of everlasting judgment? But the answer to Jesus' impassioned, desperate plea thundered down in deafening silence from heaven. No. There is no other way but the way of the cross. There is no other way for the just and holy wrath of God to be righteously removed from fallen sinners like us than for the cup of wrath to be given to a substitute who would drink it in our place. So the obedient son, the second Adam, said, not my will, but your will be done. And he arose and went to drink the cup. That was what Jesus feared in Gethsemane. Now to the second question. What was the result of Jesus' triumphant obedience in that garden? The answer is that by drinking the cup of wrath, the shepherd accomplished the salvation of his sheep. How? Now, I recognize that the cup was not actually drunk, and therefore the atonement was not actually complete until Jesus' death upon the cross some 12 hours later. But in a very real sense, this is why I began this sermon with the Garden of Eden and the fall of the first Adam. In a very real sense, the battle for our salvation was won in the Garden of Gethsemane when the second Adam, the last Adam, triumphed where the first Adam had failed. You see, when the second Adam said, not my will, but thy will be done, he won the reward of covenant obedience for himself and for all whom he represents. 
And when he drank the cup of wrath upon Calvary, he paid the penalty of covenant disobedience for all whom he represents. Thus the covenant of works is fulfilled and the covenant of grace is established. All because the second Adam submitted his will to the will of God and proved faithful to the end. Mark 14, 27 to 42, displays the faithlessness of the sheep who failed to watch and to pray and therefore fell away in their moment of trial. And it sets it side by side and contrasts it with the faithfulness of the shepherd who in the garden of Gethsemane watched and prayed. And when the moment of truth came, he remained faithful and obedient to the will of the Father. So there are two applications that emerge from this text. Number one, there is application to weak and faithless sheep who long to remain faithful in the moment of trial. Is that you? Do you long to be faithful to Jesus? Is your spirit willing even though your flesh is weak? Do you want to know how to remain faithful to Jesus in the time of trial, in the moment of temptation? How do you do it? How do you persevere in righteousness when temptation arises and sin looks so enticing? How do you persevere in your confession of Christ when silence would be so much easier and so much safer and so much more comfortable? How will you persevere in faith when doubt and fear assail and our adversaries press in on every side? Learn the lesson from the disciples. Learn the lesson of this text. I think there are three. Number one, you must learn from your failure. You see, failure is a master teacher. So let it instruct you. Let it humble you. Let it break you of your self-reliance and let it drive you to Christ. No, we are not those who glory in our failures. We do not boast in our failures as if failure, as if sin were a virtue. No, we learn from our failures. We use our failures. We share our failures, confessing our failures that others may learn from them without having to go through them. See, that's one of the beauties of the church. Our sanctification is a corporate endeavor. When one member falls into sin and comes through to repentance, and he shares that fall, and he shares that repentance with the body, the whole body is enabled to learn the lessons of that failure and to grow thereby. Don't let your failures remain private. Learn from them. Share the lessons that you've learned. That's why we have connect groups. That's why we share testimonies. God is at work in our midst to sanctify us both through our successes and through our failures. So confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that we may be healed. Lesson number two, watch and pray. Heed the shepherd's warning. 
Watch and pray that you may not come into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Too many of us just blithely meander through life as if there were not enemies on every side. Enemies without, the world, the devil, an enemy within, the flesh, all conspiring to drag us down to destruction. Watch and pray. Because the battle of faith and the war against sin are real and the stakes are eternal. And number three, entrust yourself to a faithful shepherd. Follow him. Keep your eyes on him. He will not let one of his sheep perish. Stay close to the shepherd and you will persevere to the end. When you fail, seek out your shepherd, for he has healing and grace in his hand. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Follow him, and he will lead you to the waters of life. That's the application to the sheep whose spirits are willing, but whose flesh is so weak. Learn from your failure. Watch and pray. And entrust yourself to your faithful shepherd who will lead you to the waters of life. But there is a second application of this text. There are some of you here. And you are not sheep of Christ. Or at least you don't know with confidence that you are. The entirety of human history can be summed up in the following statement. I want you to listen very, very closely, and I'm going to summarize all of human history. It's the story of two Adams. The first Adam said, Not thy will, but my will be done. And all humanity was plunged into ruin and separation from God, including you. The second Adam said, not my will, but thy will be done. And a new humanity was redeemed and will be gathered into eternal blessing and fellowship with God. All of human history, all of humanity can be divided into two groups. Those who are in the line of the first Adam and those who are in the line of the last Adam. You were born united to that first Adam. You share in his guilt. You share in his corruption. You share in his punishment. But the good news of the gospel is that you can be united to the second Adam by faith. And when you are, you become a partaker of His righteousness. You share in His spirit, His nature, His reward. That second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, will become to you a faithful shepherd and He will lead you into everlasting salvation in the presence of God. He will lead you back into the garden, to the springs of the water of life, and to the tree of life itself where you will eat and live forever in everlasting righteousness and joy. 
Revelation 7.17, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Listen to me, beloved. You were born in the first Adam, saying, not thy will, but my will be done. And that has been the theme of your life. But if you would be united to Christ, the second Adam, here's what you must do. If you would escape the line of the first Adam, if you would escape his punishment, escape his corruption, escape his destiny, you must say to God, not my will, but thy will be done. That's called repentance where you surrender and submit your heart, your life, your will, your all to the living God. And you must believe in Christ, the second Adam, whose obedience merited for you the blessing of the eternal covenant and whose sufferings and death took away your sin and took away your punishment and took away the wrath of God. You must trust in this Jesus who drank the cup of wrath in your place so that you wouldn't have to drink it and whose obedience is credited to you as righteousness by faith. Repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. This is how you can come out of the line of the first Adam and be incorporated into the line of the second Adam and receive the blessings of eternal life and joy. Come to Jesus, the second Adam, the obedient son, the sin bearer, the cup drinker, the faithful shepherd who leads all of his sheep to the springs of the waters of life and to the tree of life and to everlasting life. Come to Jesus. Come to the covenant of grace. Come home to God.